Juno shirt, no service. This week, the police announced that violent transit crime reports are up, and the province announces mandatory police body cams. Plus, the city invests another $50 million into supportive and affordable housing. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 213. And after 213 episodes of Mostly Weekly, we have very sad news for you. We're just taking next week off. We'll continue after that. But next week, we're going to take a break. Much needed. Yeah, just one week. We'll be back after that. There's lots more to talk about. And of course, there will be many more rapid fire segments, including this one. Avril Lavigne, after arriving at the Junos in an Uber, swore at an Edmonton taxi driver telling her to get off the stage. Mac, I I think at some point I'm going to wear thin of the taxi drivers are shirtless joke, but today is not that day. It's the gift that keeps on giving. In a release announcing a new round of Alberta is Calling ads in Ontario and the Maritimes, Jobs, Economy and Pipelines Minister Brian Jean told reporters that the ads would highlight, quote, some of Alberta's best kept secrets like the mountains, end quote. Tapper Edmonton reached out to a historian from the University of Alberta, but at press time she was unable to come up with a better kept secret than hundreds of millions of tons of jagged rock protruding into the sky from a completely flat, plain prairie landscape. Edmonton Catholic Schools announced that it had been defrauded through an invoice and credit card scheme performed by an employee. The extent of the fraud has been revealed to be over $200,000, or expressed in a different way, they lost less than one-tenth the amount they lose annually by refusing to allow Catholic school children to ride the bus with those destined for public schools. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you're choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kazoski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network as well, so it's a great fit. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. This week, Mac, we had a pretty significant amount of police news with transit crime stats and body cameras, and we'll get to those topics, but we're recording Thursday afternoon, and as I'm sure every single one of our listeners will have known by now, uh, there was quite a tragic event with police officers just this morning. Yeah, two Edmonton police officers, Constable Travis Jordan, who was 35, and Constable Brett Ryan, who was 30, were killed. Uh, while responding to what is being described as a family dispute in Inglewood. There's not a lot of details at the time we're recording about, you know, who um, the perpetrator was or what happened. We understand that there's a young male who potentially shot the officers who's been killed potentially by his own gun. You know, the details are still to come. The bulk of the news so far has just been about this tragedy and, uh, and how awful it is that, you know, two officers in Edmonton have lost their lives in the line of service. This is something that has happened before, unfortunately. Thankfully, not all that often. Uh, The last time, of course, would have been Constable Woodall back in 2015. We are obviously critics of the police on this podcast, and we won't do our listeners the disrespect of pretending that we're not for this episode. But we also are capable of reading the room and no amount of criticism of the Edmonton Police Commission's governance structure, nor funding of the police service 
excuses this or makes this okay. And we're not going to pretend it's like that in any way. Right. I think the other way to maybe think about it is that we usually talk about the police as an institution and we critique the institution. That's different than talking about individual crimes, which we tend not to do, or talking about individual officers, which we almost never do. In this case, we're, like everyone else, shocked at what happened and dismayed by what happened. Um, but those things can be, you know, separate. You can still be critical of an institution at the same time as you have some respect for the, the folks who do a very dangerous job on a day-to-day basis. And on that note, the province itself had announced a plan to perhaps combat some of that, both the structural demand for transparency and some of the dangers that uh, policing can levy on its individual officers, announcing just this week that Alberta plans to make body-worn cameras mandatory for all officers in the province of Alberta. Yeah, we don't have a ton of detail on this yet. There's a timeline to be determined and also, you know, cost and how it's going to be paid uh, to paid for to be determined. But uh, the public safety minister, Mike Ellis, said that, that uh, there's a working group that will supply some of that information in the next three to four months, probably after the provincial election. If this plan does all go forward, it would make Alberta the first province to mandate body-worn cameras for all police services within the province. Lots of other police services have done this already. Toronto, Calgary, for example, already has enabled its officers to have uh, body cameras. Uh, but this would be the first time that it's province-wide. So that's kind of interesting. Of course, absent from all of these press releases is the important question of, well, how much is this going to cost and who's going to pay for it? Yeah, we don't know exactly what it'll cost, but we do have some you know, comparative evidence and also some historical information. We know, for example, that for the RCMP to outfit all of its officers was going to be $131 million over five years. So that's a big number of people, obviously. But you know, that's one number. Uh, here in Edmonton, you know, we do have uh, some more specific information that has come from previous reports, because of course, body-worn cameras, or at the time it was talked about as body-worn video, is something that the police service and the city and city council has looked into. The previous cost estimate, this was from 2020 for Edmonton, is that it would cost about $8 million in capital costs to outfit uh, all of the police service office, Edmonton police service officers. And that on top of that, there would be another you know, about $2 million in operating costs required uh, for that. So neither of those, you know, things went forward, neither the capital investment into these or any sort of operations for it, obviously. But now this could be a thing that happens, assuming we figure out who's going to pay for it. The cynic in me suggests that perhaps this is a increase to police service budgets across the province, obviously not Calgary, which you mentioned already has body-worn cameras on uh, their officers. But historically, the UCP provincial government has been downloading policing costs onto municipalities, both rural and urban municipalities. So I don't know that there's an expectation that the province will fund 100% of the implementation of this new policy. I expect to see a request for budget from the EPS to say, to comply with new provincial regulations, we will need $4 million, $5 million, something to that effect. The other interesting piece of this, though, is that the EPS has done a pilot and a study on body-worn cameras that began in fall 2011 and finished in fall 2014. They found that body-worn cameras were, quote, unproven and came with significant data management issues and costs. At the time, the EPS said that they found no quantitative evidence that the cameras had an effect on complaints, nor evidence 
that the cameras led to a reduction in use of force events, but they did acknowledge that it sped up complaint investigations. Chief Dale McPhee, to his credit, has said that he wholeheartedly supports body-worn cameras across the province now and that more research has been done since the pilot in Edmonton roughly a decade ago. And that's a little bit of a change from his previous position on this, I think. So in 2020, when this last, you know, came up in Edmonton, at least, he had said at the time that he would welcome the use of cameras, but only if the federal government paid for them and said that at the time that they were more focused, it was a higher priority for them uh, to equip vehicles with microphones and cameras, dash cams, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's also worth noting that in our last pre-budget discussion, uh, when we were debating the Edmonton Police Funding Formula, Councillor Andrew Knack brought up the very salient point that Edmonton City Council has actually passed a funding package to outfit the Edmonton Police with body-worn cameras, but the Edmonton Police never, in fact, bought the body-worn cameras. They had shifting priorities and instead decided to spend the money on something else as they're fully want to do within our governance structure where city council simply passes them a whole bucket of money and the commission decides how to spend it. Yeah, this is the challenge of the way that the police commission, police act structure works, right? The city council gets to choose the amount and then they get the envelope. And then once they have the envelope, it's up to the police uh, commission and service to decide how that's spent. It's interesting to note that we did mention Calgary, though. CBC reports that Calgary found that the number of use of force incidents declined in the year after body cameras were brought in, but that internal and external complaints against police officers did increase slightly, but the complaint resolution time was reduced by half, probably owing to the fact that when a complaint comes in, you can look at the footage and know the truth of the matter. Yeah, and just thinking about that for a second, like we had this incident uh, a little while back that we talked about where, you know, police officer using some force uh, against a woman uh, downtown near Chinatown was caught on camera. And then it took a little while until uh, additional camera views were released and a fuller video was released. And, you know, I just think about that incident. And, and to me, it's a, another reason why body-worn cameras are a good thing. Maybe there's not as much statistical support for, you know, a decrease in crime or an increase in, you know, the, the kinds of things we want to see an increase in, those those positive outcomes, holding pe- police officers themselves accountable, that kind of thing. But I can't imagine it's a bad thing to have another perspective of an incident, right? To have that video to be able to use it. Now, of course, it'll be up to the police to release any of that video at any given time when when something does happen. But to know that those uh, other, you know, views might exist, I think is, is a good thing. Yeah. And for sure, there's a policy and procedure aspect of this as well, because cameras can be turned off. Cameras can be covered. Is an individual officer allowed to engage and disengage his body-worn camera? That's going to be a policy decision that will need to be made. Um, right. These. This is not an end-all, be-all solution. Because when it comes to police accountability, if the police themselves are the arbiter of what gets recorded and then afterwards which recordings get released and reviewed then, you know, we're not significantly better than where we are right now. We've just got video instead of police's word, but it's still up to the police what does and doesn't happen in an investigation. If we don't endeavor to make those systemic changes, if we don't endeavor to increase police accountability and police transparency, then spending several million dollars on a piece of technology to not materially improve anything, that doesn't strike me as the most prudent uses of finances. No, I do think, though, that increasing that accountability is is not just one or even a couple of things. It's several changes that work in concert and 
you know, body-worn cameras could be one of those things that contributes to greater accountability of police. You know, it's interesting we mentioned the police being the arbiter of what we do and don't know. We mentioned it in the context of cameras, but I found echoes of that in the press release this week by Chief Dale McPhee announcing that violent crime calls on Edmonton Transit is up 53% in one year. Yeah, they released new statistics about uh, calls for service around LRT and bus stations and broke those down into different categories. And, you know, the message here from police is that there's an increase in violence and that there's a need to better coordinate with the different agencies that are involved, which I always find interesting, actually, because we've been talking about this for months now and have had many examples of these agencies, the city and, and nonprofits and the police working together. I'm thinking of community outreach transit teams and the other transit teams that have been put together. So it's not like those things have not happened, right? Those things have happened. But back to the data, one of the things that was particularly interesting to me about this uh, announcement, Troy, and this information was released in part because it was meant to be at the police commission meeting today, which neither of us listened to, but I imagine is quite rightly focused on the, the death of the two officers. I wanted to look at the data, right? And they broke this down into different categories. So these are the categories, disorder, drugs, nonviolent, traffic, violent, weapons, and other. And from 2021 to 2022, the overall change here is 31.4%. But the increase in violent is, as you said, 53%. So that's the biggest percentage change from one year to the other is in violent. But if you look at the, the numbers here, 16 calls for service related to drugs in 2021, 17 calls for service related to drugs in 2022. That's really interesting. I think anybody who's been in an LRT station or a transit center recently could tell you that they've witnessed drug use and far fewer people would have witnessed violence, acts of violence. That is not reflected in these calls for service. Is that because those issues are dealt with by other folks, not by Edmonton police officers? Is it that Police officers themselves are not dispatched on calls for service related to drugs very often, and that's why that category is very small. It is quite curious to look at this data and see almost no calls for service related to drugs and a huge number related to you know violence. I would also say that if it's 16 to 17, that represents a material decrease in calls for service related to drug use, because the important piece of context to remember here is that we're comparing 2021 to 2022. Yes. And there was a little thing that happened, Mac. I don't know if you remember it. It's called the pandemic. <laughs> I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it affected some transit use. And just recently, Edmonton celebrated being one of the first Canadian cities to fully recover their transit ridership to pre-pandemic levels. I really feel very gross acting as if we're post-pandemic now uh, because people are still dying quite frequently from COVID. But in terms of transit recovery, you know, we have recovered. In March of 2022, last year, transit ridership was only at around 66 to 69% of its pre-COVID levels. So if you do just a little bit of back of the napkin math, you can see that none of these amounts of calls for service are broke down per capita or per transit rider. In the time that these calls for service have increased, so too has 
transit ridership massively increased. So too has reporting massively increased. We now have sheriffs and a whole host of beat patrols now on transit reporting these things and responding to these things. So is this really an increase in violent crime or use or any of the related things? Or is this an increase in reporting and a skewed display of such reporting just months before an election? Yeah, I think this is a really important point. And this is a question I always ask myself whenever I see any kind of statistics or or data from the police, which is, what is the rate Because what usually gets reported on is an absolute number, and that's these numbers that I've just read out to you, right? 16 to 17. These are absolute numbers, but you're absolutely right that it really depends on what is the denominator here. Is it, and in this case, probably it's the the number of people that are using transit centers, which, you know, is lower in 2022 for this data, change from 2021 to 22 than it is today. But still, your point is valid, like ridership has been on the increase, throughout this reporting period. So that's, I think, a really important thing to keep in mind. It's the same thing as when, you know, they say there's been a certain number of homicides, like 36 homicides or something, which is two more than last year. But you got to remember the rate. And Edmonton grows at, you know, 20 or 30,000 people a year. So the homicide rate, the number of homicides per 100,000 people, which is the standard measure that Statistics Canada would use, often shows a different thing than the absolute number. And I think that's really important context to keep in mind here. Now, the police said they're not going to release the raw data for this. So, you know, we don't know more information about, say, for example, which transit centers these things happened at. There's a little bit of information for that that they provided, but we don't have the raw data to be able to analyze that in in more depth. There's also, it's not clear, as you're kind of pointing out, how they measured and reported this. Is it how much of this is about an increase and how much of it is about an increase in reporting? So I think these are important questions to ask, and we should be, you know, making sure that when we have the opportunity these things are asked. One of the places we might learn a little bit more context about this is coming up this weekend, actually, is Transit Camp, which uh, Councillor Michael Jans has has organized. Uh, And it's not as much focused on safety and security, but I do think that'll come up, of course. And Carrie Houghton McDonald, who is the head of uh, Edmonton Transit, uh, is one of the speakers and is is slated to give a sort of state of Edmonton Transit uh, talk to the group and answer questions uh, about uh, what she's seen across the service. So that could be an opportunity to to, to learn a little bit more around the context of these numbers from the police. When I read comments about safety and security on transit, it always tends to evoke the same feeling in me that I got when Mike Nickel was running for mayor and we talked about bike lanes. I find that transit safety and security is one of those reliable wedge issues that you can mention in Edmonton and you can get people riled up. Because like you said, If you use transit semi-regularly, you have seen someone using drugs on transit. Yeah. You just have. That is a guarantee. Everyone has these personal experiences and everyone would like to see the system work better. But there's so much discord and disagreement about exactly how we get there. It's such a reliable political football And I really feel for the people who are within the transit system, like Carrie Hott and McDonald, like our transit operators who are now the reliable political football that police services, that the province, that even our own city councilors use as fodder to take shots at their political opponents, to score budget points, to do all manner of things, except I think critically 
actually improve transit. That's the thing that tends to be missing from this discussion is a desire to really make the service better. And this is exactly what Transit Camp is all about. Transit Camp is, I think, a good thing to have happen because it does have an opportunity for people who are interested in this kind of stuff to come together to talk about it. Uh, Of course, improving transit, I would say, is part of this solution or part of what you're getting at here. And the other, of course, is, as we hear again and again, addressing those root causes and the social issues that really underlie any sort of concern about safety on transit. And I guess we have a difference of opinion about how to go about that. Chief Dale McPhee, of course, thinks there should be more police officers to solve that problem. And on this podcast, I think we've talked a lot about, you know, affordable housing and other addiction support for addictions and things like that that would have a a much bigger impact than simply adding more police officers to the force. And of course, the city this week announced a plan to do that. And we'll we'll get to that in a sec. But I think I want to take a brief transit detour and just say, Mac, I've seen so many Valley Line trains driving around the city. I was driving in the car with my partner to and from Sherwood Park, and we passed Bonnie Dune. And every time I'd see train, I would go, train! And then I'd see the train come the other way, and I'd go, train! And then I'd come back returning home, and I'd say, train! And she was giving me a look every time, (laughs) saying, why are you saying train? Do you have a problem? Is this a stroke? But no, I'm just excited about the trains. And I don't know if you've been experiencing the same absolute joy I have, that this is so close to reality. I think the trains might open this year, Mac. Well, I don't know if it's joy. It's sort of like I've been burned too many times to feel like that hopeful that the train is about to enter service. But I have noticed an increase as well. I've noticed a couple of things uh, in the last week or two. So one is that uh, there are trains that run up and down the line that are full of sandbags to I gather, test the weight of these trains. Like what happens if uh, we have a whole bunch of people on them? We want to make sure those concrete pillars don't fall over. I've heard from replies on Twitter that that's not particularly new, that that had happened previously, but I think the frequency of those trains has certainly increased. And then the second thing I've noticed is that around peak times, which tends to be when I'm out walking to do a daycare drop-off and pickup, there's a lot more trains. So it seems a bit more like they're testing, not just running up and down the line, but also testing, you know, the weight and the number of trains that there might be, uh, you know, at peak service times, for example. So those things kind of make me agree with you that maybe we're getting close to the train opening, but I wouldn't hold my breath. I did not imagine that I would be the optimist on the podcast, but I frankly will hold my breath and I will go blue in the face because Mac, this is happening and I think it's going to happen before Folkfest. I'll put that on the record. That's my podcast guess. But like you said, they are doing multiple types of testing and TransEd has actually released a helpful infographic showing where we are and where we hope to get to. And just like you said, we are going to see more specific scenario types. Uh, Right now, we have finished the initial demo test and the emergency scenario tests. That was when there was the simulated incident over on 75th Street. Coming up next, It's single trains with parts of the fleet operating on and off peak with only partially on and off the track. Um, Soon we will go to uh, peak and off peak uh, single trains with the full 13 kilometers of the track running the whole thing. Then obviously they permute and increase. They have single and double trains increasing the fleet size all day, all the tracks. And the last final step is single and double trains. Full fleet, all day, peak hours, all tracks. And then we get the certificate and then service commences just in time 
to show up to Gallagher Hill at the Muttart. <laughs> I hope you're right. Uh, I will also point out that I know for sure the horns work because they get used a lot downtown. People walking in front of the trains on the tracks, like people do not care. They just walk. Uh, So those operators are laying on the horns. And then lastly, Troy, don't you think this must be the most tested LRT line in the history of the world? Like for sure, this thing can't have any problems when it opens, right? I think you're right. And I think it's the same thing that we said when the pillars cracked. You know, the first reaction to uh, the concrete's pillars cracking and having the repairs is, oh no, this is a problem. This train isn't safe. I'm scared to ride it. Yeah. But then after you wait a couple of weeks, you realize, no, it's just like when an elevator has its cable snapped and it falls to the floor. You can bet that elevator sa- shaft is going to be the safest elevator shaft for the next 100 years because when something goes wrong we make sure it doesn't go wrong twice that was a helpful detour on trains but we were going to talk about something which was affordable housing the city has announced a new investment almost 50 million dollars 48.4 million dollars of city money into supportive and affordable housing. Yeah, this is the third round of a federal program called the Rapid Housing Initiative. Uh, And we've previously benefited from this. And so to get access to funding for this latest round, the city had to submit its plan for what it wanted to do with that funding. So that 48.4 million you mentioned that we are investing allows us to access almost $73 million of federal funding. This program is for construction or potentially acquisition and rehabilitation. So we've seen that before where you know, maybe we've acquired like a, an old hotel, old hotel and converted that into affordable housing. So that's what this is about. And the plan here for the city is to do similar to what happened in earlier rounds of this federal program, where we got these five supportive housing sites constructed. So King Edward Park and Westmount. Wellington, Terrace Heights, and Inglewood. And then those get transferred to an organization like Homeward Trust, and Homeward Trust then selects the operators and starts to welcome in residents uh, to these facilities. This sounds awfully similar to what happened last year, where we had affordable housing and supportive housing units constructed, but we needed operating dollars, and the province didn't seem inclined to offer up those operating dollars, so the units remained empty. Do we have a plan to operate these units? Not that I've seen thus far. This is oh, very Great. similar yeah, <laughs> to what happened before. Uh, you know, this is about getting these things built, getting them constructed. And I suppose the hope is that the next government will come to the table with funding for supportive housing or, you know, Homeward Trust will do a similar thing to what happened previously where they tried to reallocate some money around to try to make it possible to open um, those supportive housing facilities. These are only going to give us just over 300 uh, supportive housing units. There are still over 3,000 people homeless or sleeping rough in the city of Edmonton. So the scope of the problem This is great. This is great progress and absolute kudos to the city and the federal government and notably absent the provincial government for getting this done. But we're a long shot from solving the problem. This is at best a first step. 
this federal program also has another stream. There's a there's a project stream and a city stream. And I understand that Edmonton also could get another $12.5 million on top of that for uh, three city-led projects. So those affordable housing developments we're talking about, the five that they've submitted, that'll be kind of like before. They're run by nonprofit organizations, but three city-led projects could allow us to access a little bit more funding, funding from the federal government. Again, not for operations, but to get these things built and constructed, which I suppose is you know an important step along the, the path here, right? As long as we have them, then we can just work on the problem of trying to get them operating. And of course, if we waited for these units to be funded before we built them, we simply would not build them. Right. That is historically what has happened. And historically on this podcast, we've filled this section with an advertisement and lo and behold, history repeats itself. This episode is brought to you by the Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted and produced by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. And that's it for this week and for next week as well. Yeah. Small break next week. We'll re-energize and come back and tell you about all the other things that council is up to. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.